0: Let's all bow before Almighty Yahweh. Father, Yahweh, we come before you today during the Sabbath. We thank you so much for the truth you've shown us. We pray that we would be worthy and deserving of your calling. We pray that you'd be with those here and those online worshiping you in spirit and truth. And we pray that you'd always bless those here, bless this ministry, and bless those striving to do your will and those others out there preaching as we are. Father, we thank you so much for your son, Yahshua the Messiah, and what he did for us. And we thank you and we give and ask this in the name of your son, Yahshua the Messiah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Y'all may be seated. It's good to be back and certainly good to see everybody here this week. Where most of you know, there's a very special day, according to most, coming up here tomorrow night, I believe it is. So today, for some odd reason, my PowerPoint doesn't quite look right, but that's okay. Yes, it should be on that first line there, but the title is Christmas and its pagan origins. Now, even though most view this day as a time of family and friends and fun, we know here that this day is anything but benign. It is not a benign, it is not a kosher day. The fact is, Christmas is nothing more than an amalgamation of many, many different pagan traditions going back many, many thousands of years Now, one thing I'm always amazed with is how many believers will condone uh, this day. When I say believers, by the way, I'm referring to Bible believers, not only those maybe in the the sacred name or the uh, messianic, but also those within Christianity, many, many refuse to recognize this, they condone it. Matter of fact, I want to share with you, you know, as, as our custom typically is, we we uh, blitz Facebook the, 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 the week right before Christmas, hoping that they will uh, see some truth. We've, um, as you might suspect, we we get we've gotten some opposition this week. So I'd like to share with you just a few comments, some of that opposition. So, you know, and I think we all understand this, but but here's some feedback from Facebook. It says, I personally am glad that Chris, uh, Chris, uh, Christians hijacked a random. Of course, it's hardly random. It's, I mean, that day had a very strong connotation, as we will see, so it wasn't random. This is hijacked, a random day to celebrate the birth of Christ. Not knowing the exact day of his birth, it's so cool to be able to agree on one day to join together to celebrate the birth of our Savior, to glorify him. So this is, again, one way to justify the keeping of Christmas. That is cool, that is great, that we can decide on one random day we just picked out, and we're going to honor the Messiah's birth on that day course we know and we'll see that this was not a random day that's that's one uh, faulty uh, reasoning there okay another response is isn't it awesome you know they they they, <laughs> they they always look at it in a very positive way here isn't it awesome that christians have a day to celebrate the birth of god's son that overshadows pagan ritual taking the fo- focus off of the darkness around us and bringing us into this marvelous light so again, same concept. Isn't it a great thing that we can compromise a word? All agree on one random day out there to, to recognize Yahshua's birth. Okay, another one here. It's, it's a date of a lot of things. Well, that's true. I'm sure if you look far enough and hard enough, December 25th is a date of a lot of things. It says that the devil stole it, then it is our job to take it back. Well, you know, I'm sorry to report, Yahweh never had this day, not as a day to him anyway, so there's nothing to steal. The devil counterfeited worship, as we know, and, and they continue to follow it today. But again, this is just a sen- nonsensical reasoning here. Okay, another response here. The 25th is a day the Lord has made, and we have reclaimed it. Well, I guess that's, again, another positive way of looking at it. The problem is Yahweh, certainly he made December 25th. Yahweh made every day, but never did Yahweh establish this day as any divine observance unto him. And by the way, that smiley face is not mine. That was the original comment there. I would never add a smiley face. Okay, another response. No one knows when J.C. was born. That's true. Christmas is not pagan, really. We celebrate J.C., only him. Or again, I don't know if that's quite the truth. I would agree that we don't know when Yashua was born with this concept that Christmas is not pagan, that just flies in the face of everything scholarship says. Okay, I think this is the last one here. I do not observe the unconquered sun. Of course, he said that, because that's uh, the Sol Invictus, day of the open and unconquered sun. I'm sure they read that. They don't observe the unconquered sun. Instead, I observe the birth of the risen sun. Not on the day that... The pagans observed the birthday of the S-U-N, and, and that's really the problem again. But again, it's amazing that even those who claim to believe in the Bible, even those who understand another truth, they condone and justify this day. They believe that Yahweh was fine with adopting, with, with spiritualizing, with, with rebaptizing, with repackaging a day that was originally pagan in origin. Now, there's a name for this, by the way, and that name is syncretism. Anybody familiar with syncretism? Syncretism—it basically means a blending of different ideas or beliefs. So, when we take a little bit here, take a little bit there, and we blend it all, that's that's syncretism. And that's exactly what Christianity has done, for the most part. It has taken many, many different foreign ideas and has brought those ideas into Scripture. Now, at the end of the day, we know that the only opinion that counts is whose whose opinion counts. Does your opinion count? No, not really. Does my opinion count? Nope, not at all. The only opinion that counts is the one we worship, right? That's the only opinion that counts. So what does Yahweh say about adopting pagan days? What does he say about synchronizing or syncretism, as we find? Or what does he say about repackaging these days like Xmas? Let's do a a little bit of reading here from his word. Leviticus 18, verse 3. It says, after the doings of the land of Egypt wherein you dwelt, shall you not do? And after the doings of the land of Canaan. And remember, Canaan, I mean, these were the nations, these Canaanite nations, they were, hor- uh, they, they were guilty of some horrible things, including sacrificing their own sons and daughters to this deity called Molech, along with many other abominations. So these are the things that were going on in these lands. And Yahweh says here, don't do after what you see there. He says, whether I bring you shall you not do, neither shall you walk in their doings. So, so what message do you glean from this? As Yahweh saying, yeah, absolutely. You can repackage, you can rebaptize, you can re-spiritualize something, and you can change it, and it's going to be kosher, it's going to be acceptable to me, because now you're rededicating this to me and my service. No, he doesn't say that, does he? He says the complete opposite. He says, look, don't mimic what they do. If you see something, don't follow in what they're doing. See the same thing in Leviticus 20, verse 23. It says, and you shall not walk in the manners of the nations. What do you you suppose that means, walk in the manners of the nations? Or that simply means to, to follow in what they're doing, right? That we're not to do as they're doing. This is which I cast out before you, for they committed all these things, and therefore I abhorred them. I abhor them. It's a very strong word, by the way. Deuteronomy twelve thirty 30-31 says, Thou shalt do not do so unto Yahweh Elohim, for every abomination to Yahweh. Now listen, some people have this crazy notion that every sin is the same, that there's no distinction when it comes to sin, that everything is equal in the eyes of our Father in heaven. That's not true. When the word abomination is used, it's used for the worst of the worst. It is used for, for, for what Yahweh views as morally disgusting. goes on to say what he hates. Have they done unto their mighty ones, for even their sons and their daughters they have burned a fire to their mighty ones. And, of course, we know this was Molech, that mighty one that they would kill their child put place a corpse on the arms of this deity. It says, What things soever I command you, observe to do it, thou shalt not add thereto nor diminish from it. So we, th- we see two things here. Number one, Yahweh says not only that we're not to learn or follow in the ways of the nations, but he says that we're not to add or remove from his word. We're not to add or remove from his word. So when we bring something in and repackage that item, what, is, what, what, what are we doing? We're adding to his word, right? Yahweh says, don't do that. Yahweh says, don't add to my word. And this would include any worship that's foreign to him. Certainly this would include Christmas, because, again, as we're going to see, Christmas is full of pagan traditions. It's just amazing. It's amazing. But, again, most people don't care. They'll say, we've reclaimed this day, some crazy notion, as if this day had any meaning from the beginning anyway. Now I want to look at one more verse here. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 2 through 5. This really is, is the epitome of the passages I would turn to, to to support this notion that we're not to learn how to worship as others do. So Jeremiah says here, thus saith Yahweh, learn not the way of the heathen. You know, we should be able to stop right there, right? should be able to stop right there, learn not the way of the heathen, and we should be done with the study. We should recognize and realize from that phrase alone that we should not be following and mimicking and repackaging and spiritualizing these ideas foreign to Scripture. But he goes on, he says, And be not dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the heathen are dismayed at them, for the customs of the people are vain. What does the word vain mean? It means empty. There's no substance there. There's nothing of value there. For one cuts a tree out of the forest, the works of the hands of the workmen with the axe, they deck it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers, that it move not. They are upright as a palm tree, but speak not. They must needs to be born, because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither also is it in them to do good. Well, what does this sound like to you, this, this last description here? or well, if you're like me, you think a Christmas tree. But, you know, we know this isn't the case. We know that this is not referring to the Christmas tree. But, again, there's a lot of similarities here we can see in the verbiage. Again, it says that someone cuts down a tree. Well, that's, that's pretty pretty close, right? They they fasten it with nails and hammers that it stands upright. Same thing. They deck it with silver and gold. You know, it's amazing, the similarity. But, again, this is not referring to the Christmas tree. But, you know what? Nonetheless, the Christmas tree is connected With tree worship. We'll see that later in this message. So it's not off the hook simply because this is not a Christmas tree. Christmas tree is a form of uh, tree worship, which Yahweh, as we see here, says that we're not to learn. But you know, really, this is all a moot point because, again, what does Jeremiah say in verse 2? There in verse 2, he says, learn not the way of the heathen. Again, we should be able to stop there and say, okay, is this found within Yahweh's word. If it's not found within Yahweh's word, we're going to remove it, right? Because it's not part of Yahweh's word. It's adding to his word, and we're adding it from the heathen. And Yahweh says, don't do that. Don't do that. And this would obviously uh, apply to days like Xmas. I want to move on now and talk about some of the traditional things we see with Xmas, some of the the, the historical uh, days that helped establish this day. But first, let's talk about the birth. You know, many understand and many will acknowledge that Yahshua was not born on December 25th. Some will say, some may argue that he might have been, but most will agree that scripture is silent on this. And if you're honest, they will say that this is probably not the day he was born on. So scholarship, amazingly, remarkably, agrees with this. There's no debate. You know, that's one thing i found supporting the truth. It's easy to do. We must simply have the willingness to accept it. The problem is, it's not the information's not to be found. The problem is, people refuse to accept it. That's the issue. If you want to understand Christmas or Halloween or Easter or any of these days, it's very easy to prove. All you have to do is crack open encyclopedia, dictionary, whatever, Google it. You can find it. It's not hard to find. So let's look at some scholars and see what they say. First one here is from the New Catholic Encyclopedia. It says, inexplicably though it seems amazingly it's saying, the date of Christ's birth is not known. So the Gospels indicate neither the day nor the month. Now think about what we find here. Historically, who established the date for the Messiah's birth? Who was responsible for this? We know that the Roman Church was the one who established the date for Christmas. It was the one who established December 25th for the date for the Messiah's birth. And here we find the very source responsible for this establishment of this date is confirming what? Is confirming, oh, guess what? We don't know the actual date. We don't know the day. We don't know the month. We don't know when he was born. And we also see something similar to this from the Encyclopedia of Biblical, Theological, and Ecclesiastical Literature. Long name, but one of my favorite references. It says, the fathers of the first three centuries do not speak of any observance of the nativity. The nativity is Yahshua's birth. No corresponding festival was presented by the Old Testament. The day and month of the birth of Christ are nowhere stated in the gospel history and cannot be certainly determined. So this is a very credible reference, by the way, cream of the crop. Credible reference, mainstream reference. This is not some odd reference that most would deny and reject. Most scholars would freely acknowledge this reference. And it says here that the fathers of the first three centuries knew nothing, knew nothing, about the nativity, about Yahshua's birth, about this celebration we call Christmas. So the very men who administered the church for almost 300 years says here they knew nothing about this. Think about that statement for just a moment. Let that sink in for just a moment. Consider the fact that the very men, again, who administered, who governed the church knew nothing about this day for 300 years. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing that for 300 years within the history of the early church, the date... The concept of the nativity of Yahshua's birth was not known, but would come later. This shows that there is no connection between Christmas and the Messiah. Certainly, no early connection. So, if the date for the Messiah's birth is unknown, and scholarship freely admits that, why, why did they choose December twenty-fifth? What was so special about this date? What was so special about December 25th? Well, this date was chosen simply because of its connection to pagan worship. Now, listen, I don't think they wanted to really bring in December 25th, but as we're going to see, they, they viewed this religion as a threat. We'll talk about that later. So they brought this in. They rebaptized, repackaged, spiritualized it away, and instead of it being the birthday of the S-U-N, it now became the birthday of the Yes. Owen. Oh, but again, what does Scripture say? Scripture says that we're not to add or remove from his word. When we add things to his word, that is sin because we are violating Yahweh's word. When we violate something Yahweh says, that is by necessity, that is by definition sin. So it is sin to bring in something of foreign belief, especially that which was dedicated to some sort of foreign, foreign deity. Now sun worship goes all the way back to Babylon. It's something we, saw, we we find thousands of years, but for today's study, I want to focus mainly on the time of Rome because it was during this time in history, during the time of Rome, when Christmas was established. It was the Roman church who established the state. So I want to really start with Rome. We're going to talk a little bit about Persia in one, in one observance, but for the most part, we're going to stay with Rome. Now, there, there were at least three Roman festivals or observances who who. that that contributed to this concept known as Christmas. Those uh, were Saturnalia, we'll talk about that in just a moment, Mithrism, and also Sol Invictus. So let's talk about Saturnalia. What do we know historically about this day? Well, let's find out. Again, simply crack open an encyclopedia. You can probably choose any encyclopedia. They will all say something to this same effect. This is from the Encyclopedia Americana. And it says Saturnalia, a Roman festival commemorating the happy period for under Saturn, when freedom and equality reigned and violence and oppression were unknown. It probably originated as a harvest celebration, so that's how it came in vogue. So as under the Caesars. It was celebrated from the 17th to the 23rd of December. It was one day, they eventually expanded this to seven days, during which period public business ceased, masters and slaves changed places, and feasting, giving of gifts, and general license prevailed so we see here that saturnalia was celebrated in honor to who it was in honor to saturn the god saturn and it was observed as we see here from december 17th through the 23rd now do you believe that there's it's only a coincidence that these days clo- closely correspond uh, with christmas do you think that's only a coincidence do you think there's no connection here with with saturnalia and christmas where, well, of course, there's a connection. We're going to see that. I can assure you there's a connection, and this is partially what gave rise to the day, again known as Xmas. Now, how was this Roman feast observed? Do we see here that it was a time of happiness? It was a time of equality. Some examples here masters and slaves would to trade places, gifts were given, feasts or banquets were held. Does this sound familiar with anything we do during Xmas, during Christmas? Well, of course it does. You know, the giving of gifts, right? That's certainly a big part of Christmas. Dinners. You know, one of the hardest things for new people coming to the faith, I was talking to somebody before service, is family Christmas dinners. And people come to me and they ask, should I be doing it? I say, absolutely not. You should not be going with family and observing a Christmas dinner, even if you're not recognized as, as a Christmas dinner. But we, we see here that part of Saturday was, again, giving of gifts. And having these big dinners, which we continue to do with the Xmas celebration. Now, we also find some information about this day from another source. This is from the Standard American Encyclopedia, Volume 11. This is Saturnalia, the feast in honor of Saturn, celebrated by the Romans in December and regarded as a time of unrestrained license and merriment of all classes, even for slaves. Hence, any of, any of noisy license and rivalry, unrestrained licentious merrymaking, it says. So we again see here that this was in honor of Saturn, the deity Saturn. We also see that it was a time of uh, license and rivalry. It says that this was uh, a time even for slaves. Now, most historians, for this reason, they will describe saturnalia as, as more of Mardi Gras. Or more of New Year's, the uh, solemn Christmas that we often see. This is not what historians would depict with with this Saturnalia. It was a time of parties, drinking, engaging in excess and immorality. That's what we find during this time historically. Matter of fact, this reference here uses the word licentious to describe this time. Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines this as quote, lacking legal or moral restraint. So that's how this day was and is described by historians. It was a day that lacked any moral restraint, that anything went. It did not matter what you did or who did it. could be a master, could be a slave, everything else, everything was turned upside down. So that's how they observed this day, and again, this is one source that led into Christmas. It was a time of corruption, decadence, and immorality. Now, there's another source, and that is Mithraism. So let's talk about Mithraism. What is this? Or this actually goes back all the way to ancient Persia. I want to read a source here. This is from the New Standard Encyclopedia. Again, very standard references, by the way. Nothing out of the ordinary. It says, Mithras, or Mithra, Persian-Iranian divinity, who's worshipped after, after passing through several changes and transformations, spread itself for a time far beyond the limits of its native state. If is in the Zendavesta or sacred writings of the ancient Persians, Mithras appears as chief of the Isids, or god Gen, uh, good Genii, the lord of all countries. After the Persian conquest of Assyrian Babylonia, Mithras became the sun god. So notice that connection to sun worship. Became the sun god and was represented by the orb of the day, which was worshipped in his name. This religion was introduced into Rome in 68 B.C. by some uh, Cilician uh, pirates whom Pompey had captured. Now, how they know all that, I'm not quite sure, but it's amazing the detail we, we find here. So, you know, as we see, this worship of Mithras, this, this deity called Mithra, actually goes back to ancient Persia. According to the uh, Zenda Vestas, and uh, by the way, that's uh, connected to Zoroasterism, the uh, Persian religion, that we see here that this was a a chief deity within this faith. Now, as this uh, religion, Zoroasterism, spread to Babylonia, to Assyria, we find that it became connected with sun worship, that the meaning of this deity somewhat changed. We also see here that it came in contact with Rome in about 68 C.E., now, where's the connection, though, between Mithra and the Messiah? What, what does all this have to do with Yahshua or Christmas? Or well, according to Mithraic belief, Mithra was born, when, 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 when would you guess? December 25th. Mithra was born on December 25th. Now, do you think this played a role in the church adopting December 25th as a birthday for the Son? Remember that Mithra was depicted as an orb. Mithra was known and understood as a sun god, And we find here that they took this birthday of the S-U-N, right? And they reapplied it to the birthday of the S-O-N. Now, one of the the things I really find intriguing is is this concept that Mithrasm was a major force within the early church. Now, not not all, all scholars agree on this point, but many historians, they will say for a short time, Mithrasm rivaled the church. In other words, Mithras or Mithrasm posed a threat to early Christianity. And this is, again, one reason why the church adopted December 25th. Again, this was a threat. So instead of removing it, and actually I think they probably tried, they couldn't remove it, or they simply adopted it. Now there's a third system that also played a part in Xmas in the traditions that we see now, and that is Sol Invictus. This comes from the Latin, meaning unconquered sun. Well, here's a description, one of my favorite references, the Encyclopedia Britannica. So here's what it says about this concept of Sol Invictus. This is during the latter periods of Roman history, sun worship gained in an importance, in importance and ultimately led to what has been called a solar monotheism. That's very intriguing to me. So during this time within the uh, ch- history of the church, it was a solar monotheism. I'll explain that just in a moment. It says, Nearly all the gods of the period were possessed of solar qualities, and both Christ and Mithra acquired the trace of solar deities. So this concept of solar, the sun, became very popular. It says, The feast of Sol Invictus, o- open and conquered sun, yep, that's right, on December 25th, was celebrated with great joy, and eventually this date was taken over by the Christians as Christmas, the birthday of Christ. I mean, there it is. You know, this is from the Encyclopedia Britannica. You know, if there's any source you know, that's viewed as as, as, uh, as credible across the board, it's the Encyclopedia Britannica. And according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, as we see here, this is the day or the observance that gave rise to Christmas. So, again, this is a third arm of what gave rise to this concept of Xmas. And we see that this, this day, Sol Invictus, was observed on December twenty fifth now we also see this term again. it says that in Rome at this point that there was a solar monotheism. what does that mean solar monotheism or well, whether the word solar obviously this is a reference to the sun right? Well the term monotheism or well, this refers to the worship of only one deity so we find this concept that there was one deity and it was a solar attribute gained dominance within this time. Of Rome. And again, I find that just amazing. I find that really intriguing. You know, we still see this, though, in the church today. We still see this, this influence of, of sun worship within the church today. For instance, uh, it's common to see certain denominations, uh, they had the saints with the halos in the background. That's really a depiction of the sun. Also, Sunday, the day that they uh, worship on, the day that superseded or replaced the Sabbath where this comes from the, uh, the Latin dia solus, meaning day of the sun. And you know, as we know, as history shows, it was Emperor Constantine who, who, if you will, finalized this change for Sabbath to Sunday. And we also know that he was a known as some worshiper. matter of fact, there's a coin out there. You'll see Constantine on one side and a Sol invictus on the other. I think we may even have a copy of that downstairs. So there's there's no debate. There, there's, no, <laughs> there, there's no debate here. Everybody understands Emperor Constantine was a sun worshiper, and he was the one who, who really solidified this transition. It was already occurring, but he's the one that really helped it along. We find how strong this influence was from another reference here. This is the New International Dictionary of the Christian Church. Again, reputable sources, page 223. It goes on, as it says this, December 25th was the date of the Roman pagan festival inaugurated in 274 as the birthday of the unconquered sun or Sol Invictus, which at the winter solstice begins again to show an increase in light. Sometime before 336, the church in Rome, listen to this, unable to stamp out this pagan festival, which gives me reason to believe that they tried to do something, but evidently whatever they were doing was not enough, it was not sufficient. It says it spiritualized it, repackaged it as the feast of the nativity of the S-U-N of righteousness. So we see here that in 274 CE, Rome officially commemorated December 25th as the birthday of the sun. This was again Sol Invictus. Now about 60 years later, we see here that the church unable, says to, to stamp this out, to remove this influence, the church simply adopted it. They adopted them. Now, now, why was this done? You know, more than anything else, it was for self-preservation, I believe. Because, again, Mithrasim, Sol Invictus. This really gave the uh, church a run for its money. It was a real threat. So, for self-preservation and also for growth. Because they wanted to bring these pagans in. And they knew one way, easy way to bring these pagans in was simply to compromise the word and, and allow this worship to come in. And that's not really unusual, by the way. You know, that happens a lot, and it happens even now. It happens even within Yahweh's own people sometimes. We'll, we'll start making changes and compromises because we want people to come in, or we want people to feel more invited. And look, we want everybody to feel invited here. You know, that's, a, that's, a main, that's a major goal we have. We want people to feel welcome when they come here. But we're not going to do it to the detriment of the truth. You can't do it to the detriment of the truth, and that's what Christianity did. And, and as a result, they paid. Now, in some ways, this reminds me of Jeroboam. We all know Jeroboam. Jeroboam, the first king over the uh, nation of Israel, after the split, after Solomon died, it split between Jeroboam and Jeroboam. Jeroboam took the, uh, the uh, ten northern kingdoms, and there came a point where Jer- Jeroboam had to make a decision. He could allow and encourage, as he should have done, the people to go back to the southern tribe to worship during Yahweh's appointed time, but we find that because he feared his life and he feared losing his authority, we know scripturally that he made some major reformations. He made some changes. He, he changed the Feast of Tabernacles from the seventh to the eighth month, right? He, he changed the priesthood. And he also said idols, one in Bethel, one in Dan, Bethel in the south, Dan in the north. And he said, look, this is Yahweh. Worship him there. But we know that after Jeroboam, Israel never recovered you know, there's not one good king in the history of Israel. Now, again, realize I'm talking about Israel, not Judah. There's not one good king after Jeroboam within the nation of Israel. Not one good king. They never recovered. And, you know, in many ways, we see the same trend with the church today. Compromise, compromise, compromise. And, you know, this, feat, this message is really focused on Xmas. But, you know, I think we can just as easily focus on compromise and what it does to faith. Now, believe it or not, there were some within Christianity who opposed Christmas. Let's read about that. This is from a book called Celebrations, entitled Celebrations, page 312. And it says, In England, the Puritans could not tolerate this celebrating for which there was no biblical sanction. Isn't that amazing? Let that sort of sink in for just a moment here goes on to say, consequently, the round head parliament of 1643 outlawed the Feast of Christmas, Easter, Whitsuntide, along with the Saints' Day. So as we see here, the Puritans in 1643 outlawed both Christmas and Easter. Now, notice the reason for this. Notice why they did this. It just blows me away. You know, I've read this quote for so many years. But every time I read it, it just blows me away. They did this because these days had no biblical sanction. Think about that for just a moment. Think about the reasoning, the right reasoning of these people. They they looked at these days, and they asked, do these days have any biblical sanction? Do Do these days have any biblical roots? And obviously the answer is no, and they said, we can't observe these days. We can't follow these days. Again, they must have read the Bible verses not to add or take away from the word. And they realized that this was adding. Think about how worship would change today if ministers would take this same bold stand. If they would think about what they're doing, if they would look at what they're doing and ask the, the, the one very simple question, does this jive with scripture? Does this correspond with what I read in the Bible? And it doesn't matter what denomination we are. It doesn't matter what affiliation we are. We can all benefit by asking this, even those in the faith, reevaluating our faith. We should always ask, do we find this within Yahweh's word? Because, again, at the end of the day, whose opinion really matters? Does your opinion matter? No, your opinion really doesn't matter. Does my opinion matter? No, my opinion really doesn't matter. The only opinion, again, that matters is the opinion, and it's not the opinion, that's the word of our Father in Heaven. That's the only opinion that matters. Okay, I want to read another source here. This is from the history.com. This is the uh, website for the History Channel. It says, In the early 17th century, a wave of religious reform changed the way Christmas was celebrated in Europe when Oliver Cromwell. And as Puritan forces took over England in 1645, they vowed to rid England of decadence and as part of their effort, canceled Christmas. You see, Christmas back then wasn't what Christmas is, or at least in, in many ways, isn't what it is today. It so says, by popular demand, Charles II was restored to the throne, and with him came the return of the popular holiday. The pilgrims, English separatists who came to America in 1620, were even more orthodox in their Puritan beliefs than Cornwell. As a result, Christmas was not a holiday in early America. From 1659 through 1681, the celebration of Christmas was actually outlawed in Boston. I always find that a little bit comical. Think about that. Anyone exhibiting the Christmas spirit was fined. It says five shillings. Five shillings. If you exhibit it, so you better not exhibit any Christmas or Xmas spirit and think about it. In mean, Boston, it's a hub of immorality today, a hub of liberal thinking. And at one point, it outlawed Christmas because, again, this was not supported and found in Scripture. So we see here that along with the Puritans in England, the Puritans or pilgrims who came here, did the same thing. Where the only difference is, according to this reference, and again, this is a very credible reference, that the Puritans here the pilgrims here were even more orthodox or hardcore when it came to the orthodoxy or what we find within Scripture. How many people do you think would realize or, or, or know historically that this, that this happened? You know, if you ask somebody on the street, you know, was Christmas ever outlawed in this nation? How many people could, would know this? Or probably very few, very few. Moving on, I want to talk about two Christmas uh, traditions. One is uh, Santa Claus, and the other is, is um, the Christmas tree. So let's focus first on the Christmas tree. As I mentioned, tree worship is, is uh, condemned. We know that. We saw that in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 5. Look, the, the, the true worship goes back for millennia. Matter of fact, here's a, a reference. It's called the Golden Bough. And here's what it says about tree worship. is the tree worship is well attested for all the great European families of the Aryan stock or the white stock among the Kelsey oak worship. This was really predominant in the uh, the uh, northern Europe. the oak worship of the Druids is familiar to everyone. Sacred groves were common among the ancient Germans. And tree worship is hardly extinct among their descendants at this present day. Or what do you suppose... He's referring to when he says it's not extinct today. Or he's referring to the Christmas tree. It's not hard to figure out. He's pointing out that tree worship is alive and well today as it has been for thousands of years. This is nothing new. Well, let's now talk about old St. Nick, Santa Claus. Now, according to many, most, Santa Claus traces back to a monk named St. Nicholas. Tradition says that this monk lived or existed about 280C near the modern-day Turkey, nation of Turkey. And uh, tradition also says that he was known for his uh, kindness, that he was known for his piety. It's believed that he gave most of his wealth away to uh, feed the poor, to help the sick, and I believe that's probably true based on what I know historically. Now, the first mention of this man in America, St. Nicholas, was in the uh, end of the uh, 18th century in December 1773, A New York newspaper reported that a group of Dutch families had commemorated the anniversary of St. Nicholas. But prior to this, again, there was really no mention of St. Nicholas within this nation. Again, the Dutch brought it. Now, while Santa Claus may have some roots to this monk named uh, St. Nicholas, there's evidence to show that this tradition goes back much, much further and is much, much more sinister than what many Realize. Now it's kind of a, a, a comical title, but there's a book out there, DNA I, I, we have the book here. It's called "A Santa Claus: Last of the Wild Men." And uh, here, in this book, we find that good old St Nick may have a connection to Odin, the uh, Norse uh, God within a Norse mythology. It says there, there in this book, children would place their boots filled with sugar, carrots, or straw near the chimney of Odin's flying horse, Slipner. Does that sound familiar? That tradition? Of course, we don't use sugar or carrots anymore. Kids won't touch that. Well, the sugar they will, the, the carrots they won't. We have a flying horse, Slipner. It says Odin would then reward those children for their kindness by placing Slipner's food with gifts or candy. His practice survived in Germany, Belgium, and the Netherlands after the adoption of Christianity and became associated with St. Nicholas, so notice that. There's a connection going all the way back that became associated with this monk as a result of this process of Christianization and can still be seen in the modern practice of the hanging of uh, stockings at the chimney in some homes. And by the way, here is a photo now, there's lots of photos, by the way, of Odin, so it's kind of hard to know which one would best represent. But there's Odin and Slipner, his fly, famous flying horse. And just to be a little bit comical there, I, there's, it's kind of hard to see on that screen, but there's Santa Claus with his reindeers flying through the sky, as we find with Odin and his famous horse, Slipner. So, again, even uh, Santa Claus goes back to this sinister. Historical past to Norse mythology, certainly something that Yahweh would never approve of. This is, again, adding to the word. It's it's learning the ways of the heathen. It's just amazing. It it just dumbfounds me how people can accept this. Well, what does the Bible actually say about Yahshua and his birth? What do we actually find? You know, there, there are so many traditional stories. But how many people really go back to verify, to confirm whether... What they believe is biblically true. Right, we're going to do that today. We're going to go back and it won't take too long. We're going to see evidence of what Scripture actually says when Yahshua was likely born, what's the truth about these, uh, these uh, wise men, and you know, what does the, uh, these shepherds come into play. So let's pinpoint about when Yahshua was born. Here's what we know for sure Yahshua was not born on December 25th. We may not know the date he was born. We don't. We don't know the date he was born. Some say they do. I don't believe that. I really don't. I, don't. I don't believe anybody can can fully ascertain the date of the Messiah's birth. But we do know it was not December 25th, and we'll see that as we go through this message. But I do think we can see the season or the timing uh, when uh, about he was born. So how do we do this? We do this through the course of the Abbey We do this through the genealogy of John the Baptist. So let's do that. Luke chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 5 through 13. It says, There was in the days of Herod the king of Judea a certain priest named Zacharias. Now we know, by the way, that this was also the timing of when John was conceived. But we also see here that Zacharias, he was a father of John the Baptist. He was a priest, and he served his course, it says, was was of the course of Abiah. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. And his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before Elohim, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of Yahweh blameless. And they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren. They both were now well stricken in years. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before Elohim in the order of his course... According to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of Yahweh, and the whole multitude of the people were praying without, at the time of incense. And there appeared unto him an angel of Yahweh standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, he was fearful, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. We know him as John the Baptist. Now, where do we find proof here for the Messiah's birth? We're in verse 5 again. We find a man named Zacharias. So Zacharias was the father of John the Baptist. He was serving in the temple, and we know that his course was of the course of Abiyah. Now, how does this help us in determining the Messiah's birth? Well, in the Old Testament, we find that there were 24 courses, 24 courses. And they, these courses began during the month of Abib. The priest, as I understand it, would serve Sabbath to Sabbath, and they would serve twice a year. Now, we see in 1 Chronicles 24.10. I'm not going to turn there, but you want to make a note of it, you can. 1 Chronicles 24, verse 10. We see there that Abiyah, it says, was of the eighth course. Abiyah was of the eighth course. So this was eight weeks then, right, after the beginning or the start of the biblical year. So what do we, what, what do we know based on this? We're based on this fact. We know that Abib generally falls sometime late March, early April. And if it's eight weeks after the start of Abib, this would then place the conception of John the Baptist somewhere around the beginning of June. So we can ascertain or or understand the timing of John's conception. Now, as we see here in Luke, this was, again, the time that that John the Baptist was conceived. And we see one piece of the puzzle, but there's more we must learn. So, So where do we find this information? We need to keep reading. So Luke 126 through 31 there's one more piece of the puzzle we need to understand says, in the 6th month the angel Gabriel was sent from Elohim unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary and the angel came in unto her and said hell thou that art highly favored Yahweh is with thee blessed art thou among women and when she saw him she was troubled at the saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with Elohim. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Yahshua. Now we see here six months after Elizabeth conceived, John the Baptist, we find here that Mary receives this visit from an angel, saying that she too will conceive a son, and that this son will, 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 will be called Yahshua. So John the Baptist was six months older than, than Yahshua. So based on this, when was Yahshua likely conceived? We have a chart here. So if John's conception took place in June, of course, the, the, the normal duration of pregnancy, that would place his birth sometime in, the, uh, uh, in, in March, Six months, so from June, is, is uh, about December. So this is likely when Yahshua was conceived or, or, or you know, through, through the Holy Spirit. Now, again, assuming normal duration of uh, pregnancy, Yahshua would have then been born sometime in September. So, again, this is the best we know. This is the best we can do. This does not show us the day when Yahshua was born. does not show us maybe even the month exactly, but we know sometime around the middle of, Ju- or the, the, the middle of September. Now, some speculate, and certainly there, there's evidence to support this. Again, we don't know for sure, but some believe that Yahshua was born on the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles, and certainly we see, based on the chronology here, that this is a possibility that the Yahshua could have been born on the feast. Well, let's now talk about shepherds. The uh, Christmas story goes... The shepherds received a miraculous message about the infant Messiah in the field on December 25th. So is that true? What do we see from a biblical standpoint? Well, Luke chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, this is where we find the mention of shepherds. And it says this, Suddenly there was, with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising Elohim. Can you imagine that just for a moment, all these angels in the heavens, seeing them praise and sing, what, a, what an awesome sight this must have been. And saying, glory, glory to Elohim in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said, one, uh, said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which Yahweh hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, they were in a hurry, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe laying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they, had, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. So what do we see here in this passage? For number one, we see that Yahweh did provide the shepherds with a miraculous message. Again, they witnessed these, these angels singing and praising and rejoicing with the birth of Yahshua the Messiah. You know, considering that Yahshua was compared to a shepherd, you know, I've often thought about this. To me, it's only fitting that shepherds were the first to really witness his birth. Because, again, Yahshua is a shepherd, he's our shepherd. Now, again, the tradition goes that shepherds witnessed his birth, or not his birth, but the, the infancy. And. We see that. It's true scripturally, but it also says that this took place on December 25th, or do we see that here? Do we see any evidence whatsoever that December 25th was the date when the shepherds came to visit the infant Yahshua? No, there's nothing. Matter of fact, this is highly unlikely, if not impossible, and let me explain why. Historically, we know a few things about shepherds. We know, for, for instance, they were not in the fields in the dead of winter because they would stay with their flocks. They would stay in the fields with with their flocks, and and they could not stay in the middle of winter, so they were not in the fields. Matter of fact, again, you know, remarkably, scholarship is very honest with these things. I'm going to read from Barnes notes, Phineas Barnes, great commentary. Don't agree with everything we find within it, but a very good commentary, and again, very well respected among scholars. It says remaining out of doors under the open sky with their flocks. This was commonly done. The climate was mild, and to keep their flocks from straying, they spent the night with them. So they would literally sleep out. Matter of fact, we got to visit a ranch. Oh, this has been a while ago. But this uh, ranch, they had they had a flock, and this guy, shepherd, literally stayed with them all the time. He had a little trailer when, he, when, he, when they were near, but, I mean, he literally slept out with, with his flock. It was really amazing to to see that, and people still do that today. But anyway, it says, um, they spent the night with them. It is also a fact that the Jews sent out their flocks into the mountains, mountainous and desert regions during the summer months and took them up in the latter part of October or the first part of November when the cold weather commenced. While away in these deserts and mountainous regions, it was proper that there should be someone to attend them to keep them from straying and from the ravages of wolves and other wild beasts. It is probable... Now, some say, absolutely, there's no way this occurred. Now, they say probable. They give just a little bit of room there for a possibility. Most won't. It says, from this, that our Savior was born before the December 5th of December, or before what we call, quote, Christmas. At that time, it is cold, and especially in the high and mountainous regions about Bethlehem. But the exact time of his birth is unknown. There is no way to ascertain it. By different learned men, it has been fixed at each month in the year. Nor is it of consequence to know the time. Well, that's the same thing as saying it doesn't matter when he was born. If it were, says G.O.D., would have preserved the record of it. Matters of moment are clearly revealed, those which he regards as of no importance are concealed. And, you know, it's obviously important, his birth. I don't think anybody here would say that Yahshua's birth was not important. But the point here is well made, because if Yahweh wanted us to observe his birth, he would have given that date. You know, he gives us a date for his death. He says, observe his death. And we know when we're to observe that death, we're to observe that death on the 14th of Abib every year. But we don't see any command here. And we also see here through this source, the shepherds were not in the field when? They were not in the field in December. Basically, it says at the end of October, the beginning beginning of November, these shepherds would come in and they would be put up for the winter because it, it was too cold in these regions. Well, let's now move on and I want to talk about wise men. Wise men. Story goes, three wise men visited the manger with the shepherds, and they gave three gifts to the infant Messiah. Now, as we saw with the shepherds, only part of that story was true, and the same thing here, only part of the story is true. So let's read the account, Matthew 2, 1 through 2, and also we're going to skip down to 10 through 11. It says, now when Yahshua was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Well, for we have seen his star in the east, and we are come to worship him. Now, I'm not going to really dwell too much on this star. I, I tend to think it was probably an angel. I don't know that for sure. There's lots of interpretations as to what this star was. Um, but I, I tend to think it was probably something angelic, but I could be wrong with that. It doesn't say us. All we know is it's, it's a star that they followed it says, for we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the manger, right? No, it doesn't say that, does it? It says, when they came into the house, they saw the young child with Miriam his mother and fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, based on what we find here in the Bible, what's wrong with this picture? What's wrong with this picture now? By the way, based on tradition, we should also see some uh, shepherds, but we don't see the shepherds. So what's wrong with this picture? Number one, the Bible does not mention three wise men, uh, only three gifts, right? I believe that there was probably more than three wise men. I, I can't prove that, by the way. It's one of those other things I believe but can't prove. And the reason I believe that is this was a very momentous account. And I believe that these wise men would have had, would have had a more, more of a representation. What else? Well, the wise men visited the boy Messiah, not the infant Messiah. Not the, boy, not the infant, but the boy. And last here, the wise men visited the house, not the manger. So those are three obvious issues when we read the biblical account and then look at the traditional account. There could have been three wise men, but there's nothing that says that. This is an assumption based on three gifts. And again, my assumption is that there were, there were probably many more than three wise men that were there to honor and worship. Now, by the way, where it says worship, just real quick, I know some people get real hung up on this Word worship in reference to the son and they want to deify Yahshua based on this word worship. Or in the Greek, this simply means reverence. They were reverencing Yashua. They were honoring Yashua. Now, why, for the record, why were they honoring Yahshua? Why were they reverencing Yahshua? Was it because they were they were paying homage to his birth? Well, of course not. He wasn't born, right? He wasn't born at this point. He was he was already a child. He was he was in the house. Or well, the key is to recognize that that they came to worship the king of the Jews. They came to show respect, to to honor the king of the Jews. This has nothing to do with worshiping his birth. They were there to honor the king of the Jews. That's what we see in verse 2. They were there to honor the king of the Jews. It's so important that we recognize this fact and realize that they were not there to recognize or honor or worship his birth. They were there to honor a king. Now, how old was Yahshua? we know he wasn't an infant, right? He wasn't a manger. We know he was, he's called a boy here. We know that he's in a house. Do we have any information as to how old Joshua was at this time? Well, he was probably around the age of two. How do we know this? So in Matthew 2.16, this is in Herod when he saw that, the, that, that he was mocked. You know, his wise men did not go back. Now the wise man was exceeding wroth; He was angry and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. So we find here that Herod was upset. And because he was upset, he was concerned. And by the way, why was he concerned? He was concerned because he was threatened. Why was he threatened? Because these these wise men... uh, viewed Yahshua as the king of the Jews. Who was Herod? King of the Jews. You see, this was a threat to Herod, and he wanted to remove the threat. So what do we we see here? Where he murdered all the children within Bethlehem and around that area, two years and younger. So more than likely, Yahshua was about the age of two, or right under the age of two, when the wise men came to visit. So again, the wise men did not come to a manger. We know that, right? We know that the wise men were not there with the shepherds. We know that the wise men were not there to worship his birth. We know that scripture does not say three wise men, just simply wise men. And we know that the wise men were there to honor a king, a future king of the Jews. You know, as we've seen all throughout this message, the story of Exodus is, is nowhere to be found within scripture. It is foreign. It is pagan. It is something that the church added because of fear. Same reason Herod murdered these kids is the same reason the church added this belief. They were fearful of what Sol Invictus or Mithrism would do to the church and they wanted to stamp this out. So they decided we will we will adopt it. We will adopt it. We will we will bring this in and we will simply accept it. You know as we've seen though Yahweh is very adamant about something and that is when it comes to his worship Yahweh is very stringent when it comes to his worship. Yahweh says, you'll worship me as I define it within my word. He says, you will not worship me as you define it within, within man's ways. You know, this includes keeping the Sabbath and feast days. And it's amazing. It's remarkable. You know, there's some uh, Sabbath-keeping organizations out there that are now really embracing Christmas. You know, how they do that, I just have no con- They keep the Sabbath. They, they realize that the Sabbath is important but they'll bring in this garbage of Christmas. It's just amazing. It's astounding that they don't see it. I mean, here you have Yahshua keeping the feast days. You have the apostles keeping the feast days. Nowhere is Christmas mentioned. Easter is mentioned once in one translation, no other. And yet, they choose to accept these man-made holidays in honor of, in lieu of Yahweh's days. You know what? happens when we compromise Yahweh's worship I, you know we could give an entire message on that I want to just reference one example you know remember Nadab and Abihu remember those guys scripture says that they offered strange fire before Yahweh they, they were the sons of Aaron remember what happened as a result of this Yahweh rained fire down he, 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 he smote those two guys Aaron's sons because they simply offered a strange fire before Yahweh we don't know what that strange fire was we just know it was not What Yahweh prescribed within His Word. And because of that, these two men lost their lives because of their refusal to worship Yahweh in the way He defines within His Word. You know, Yahweh cares about worship. And that's such an important concept. He abhors, Scripture says, anything outside of His Word. I pray that this message, I know most of us know this, by the way, but something like this is good to review. It's good to understand. It's good to realize, okay, this is, this is how this day arose. But you know what? If you're keeping this day, I want to sort of uh, speak to those just for a quick moment. If you're keeping this day, look, this is not a condemnation to you. You know, we're not here to condemn anybody. We're here to simply help others understand and show the truth. So if you're keeping this day, I would encourage you to study this out, to look into it and to really consider as, you know, the Puritans did, as the pilgrims did, does this day, does my worship have a biblical sanction? And if not, we need to change. So with that, shalom and may Yahweh bless you.